The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaronsmee, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Part of the work of breaking stigma, which is something I try to do with this show and with my other endeavors, is about talking, writing, sharing, opening up. It's not easy and it feels risky. It feels vulnerable, especially when you do it in public. But I truly believe the only way we move forward is by being more honest and normalizing things that so many of us experience, but that we don't talk about, even when they're uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to say the quiet parts out loud. Today's guest is someone I have that in common with. Mita Malik is head of inclusion, equity, and impact at CARTA, and she co-hosts the podcast Brown Table Talk, also from LinkedIn Presents. Mita is someone who takes experiences from her own life and work and amplifies them. She shows us structures that need correcting, normalizes and honors the feelings that a lot of us feel, and helps us with the healing that we might choose or need to do. But choosing to become a public figure in this way isn't always easy. Malik is also the author of a new book called Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. And I started by asking her why she decided to start talking about workplace inequities, vulnerabilities, and issues in the first place, and how she became a public figure in this way. I'm processing that you called me a public figure. Absolutely. I don't I don't think of myself that way. I just think of myself as mom. But as my parents <laughs> always told me, you stay humble, hustle hard. So I think about that a lot. I think there are two things that really happened probably in the last few years that got me to a place where I thought I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And I have a responsibility to use my voice. One was being in an incredibly toxic work environment, working for a incredibly toxic bully leader at the time. Mm. And the second was suddenly losing my father. And I think there's nothing like grief that resets the course of your life. And when you lose someone suddenly and it was completely unexpected, you start to think of your life differently. Like, what if today was my last day Mm. and how would I want to live it? So I do think both of those instances, particularly my father's death, I think has set me on a different trajectory in my life than maybe I would have envisioned when he was still here. And what was your goal in talking about toxicity at work when you were sharing it? Because you have a really unusual and wonderful style. (laughs) (laughs) I, well, I love writing. I pose as an extrovert. I'm really an introvert. I just really enjoy writing and storytelling. Mm. And part of it is half art and half discipline, and you just get better at it over time. And so I never realized, Maura, I guess it was just in my own world experiencing these things 
I didn't realize other people were going through them as well. And so I think probably the first time I shared it, I was like, oh boy, what's the reaction going to be? And you have a few people say, wow, that's my story too. Uh And there's something about storytelling that's so healing and helps build community and inspires change. And so where my voice is today, it certainly didn't happen overnight. It took time. Yeah. And now I think to myself, I have an amazing following, community, people who support me, people who I learn from. And so I want to shed light on these conversations that no one talks about. I always say, let's like, let's say the quiet parts out loud. Like, what's going <laughs> on? Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Oh, that's funny. I think you and I are both very good at that. Right. But I do think that there is such a hunger for authenticity when it's done in an instructive way. And I always, I really admire your work for that. It doesn't ever feel, sometimes I think on social media, people share their trauma in a way that is without boundaries. Mm, Yeah. It's interesting. I think that in social media, you'll see those extremes. And you'll also see the people who, you know, the mom guilt that's fueled from the birthday party I didn't do or the activities I don't do with my kids or the <laughs> things people are posting are like, oh boy, I'm going to post nothing. I know. And so I do think there's this feeling that social media has created that there's so many people who are overnight successes, which is just not true. A colleague said to me a while ago, we live in this society right now that people want everything microwavable in 60 seconds or less. <laughs> and so we were all being raised that way. Like right now I could just old order a Chipotle burrito bowl and eat it while we're talking. Is it right? crazy? Like I, I could do just like whatever I want right now when I want it. And our children are being raised that way too. And so that's part of also why I want to share the journey with individuals. Like I am not an overnight success. Hmm. No way. And so I think that inspires people as well to keep trying. Don't give up on your dreams. A hundred percent. I want to talk about your work, but first I want to talk about me. Um, (laughs) You read my book. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And you wrote a really beautiful LinkedIn post about it. and, And you sort of had this fundamental question, which is, all these years, have I been ambitious or have I been anxious? Listen, Maura, I've been telling everyone about your book. <laughs> I know we're going to talk about my book, but I have to talk about your book. I can't remember a book in recent history that has really touched me in a personal way and has really caused me to question my entire career journey. Oh, my. <laughs> like, you know, like, and, I, and that's heavy, but really the question that you just said back to me and I texted you immediately to say, oh, my God. All my life, people have been like, Mita's so ambitious. Wow, you're so ambitious. You're so ambitious. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I guess I am ambitious. And I know that's a loaded term, particularly when you label women with ambition. Yes. And I read your book and I thought to myself, I think I've actually might be just anxious my entire career, anxious that I'd be found out, anxious that I don't belong, anxious that I'm different than everyone else, anxious that I'm the lonely only, anxious because I was raised in a home where my dad was working. My mom stayed home and raised us and later on went back to teach. But also my dad and mom didn't have a lot of community here as immigrants. They were always in survival mode. And so there was anxiety around that. So I'm like, wow. Well, first of all, thank you. But I want to dive into the idea of the anxious ambition. 
What does it feel like when you think about the role that anxiety might have played? Just as you talk about it's a superpower, it actually fueled me to get to where I am today. Yeah. Because I don't know. All I know is my experience as a woman of color in corporate America. That's the only experience I know. But I know because I entered a world of work that wasn't designed for someone who looked like me, Mm. I had to fight harder. I had to be better. Had to work twice as hard for less recognition. I just had to. But I always also having experienced two job layoffs and having had family members experience layoffs, that also was part of my journey. Am I going to get let go? Am am I not good enough? Are people going to think that I'm not up for this role? And, you know, it's interesting, even at this point in my career, that voice is still there. I think we all have that inner critic. My friend, Wendy Leshgold, just co-authored a book. She has an amazing company called Fast Forward, and I took a course through them, and, and they talk about quieting the inner critic, right? The really mean things that you think about yourself and say to yourself that you would never actually say to a friend, but we would be that unkind to ourselves. And that also fuels the anxiety. But I also will say what's also really interesting is there have been moments in my career where I did show up confident and capable, but others instilled anxiety in me Mm. because they were gaslighting me. They were dismissing me. They were minimizing me. They were underestimating me. One of the toxic leaders I worked for, I'll never forget, and I talk about this on my podcast, Brown Table Talk with DC Marshall. I'll never forget, I was asked to present to our top 200 leaders at this company. And I did it, and it went really well. And it was really anxiety provoking. It was a lot of preparation. I nailed it on stage, did really well. The CEO came up to me, all this stuff. A week later, I'm in this former boss's office, and he says to me, Maura, you know, at your level, you're not supposed to be that good. You do know that, right? (sighs) You know, at your level, you're not supposed to be that good. And that is one of like hundreds and hundreds of comments that individual would make over the course of my time having to work for them. But that will start to instill anxiety and self-doubt in you. So I certainly carried it throughout my career, but others instilled it in me as well. It's an art. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I, I, it's so funny because I can totally relate. I, I actually had an experience pretty recently where I showed up full of confidence and feeling amazing mm. and systematically over a year was just like, literally, I felt like a, I felt like a piece of like a rabbit being picked apart by a vulture. It, <sighs> it just, it was that constant sense of, it, it is like the movie Gaslight because you begin to question mm-hmm. yourself and The thing about the anxiety and the inner critic that's different from being toxic, I think, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that, you know, for a lot of us, that inner critic is a foil. It's a foil and it pushes us, right? Because it says, oh, you could do better than this or is this really as hard as you're going to work? It, it it questions you and pushes you and you sort of say, no, you're right. I'm going to work harder. No, you're right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do better. Mm -hmm. To me... Not that I'm defending the inner critic, but it's different than someone external, usually in a position of power, who is cruel and gaslighting. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a difference. And I think for me, over the years, that inner critic has changed. And I love that analogy, that idea of a foil. I really like that. I think early in my career, 
I would have been in a room and someone would have asked a question. I wouldn't have responded the way I should have, or I missed my moment to contribute, or I misquoted a statistic. And I would leave and the inner critic would say, I can't believe you missed that. Oh, my God. <laughs> the inner critic would replay it and rewind it over and over again. And I think over the years, you just there's there's so much happening in life and you realize no one else is remembering that moment. Only you are. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you were the star of your own show and movie, Mita. Yes, <laughs> you were important in your head. Nobody else remembers that you did that. Like people have moved on. So the inner critic changes over time as well. It's so true. I'm curious about your relationship with critical feedback and how it might have changed mm. over the years. That's a great question. Feedback is a gift. I do believe that. Not all feedback is meant to be received and acted upon, particularly when it's really <laughs> gaslighting. And that's what I've discovered yeah. over the years. You know, when I was writing my book, Reimagined Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, it's it's been a journey of anxiety to write the book and have it come out. But it was interesting. I have a rainy day folder which is all the love notes people send you. And when you're having a bad day, you go look at your Randy folder. And then I have a rejections folder. And I have, I think it's over 40 rejections. I don't remember. My agent has sent them all to me, but I've kept them all. Book rejections? or just Book all... rejections for the proposal, right? For Whoa. the book. Yeah. I have so many. I, I, I can't even keep count. There's so many. But when it comes to feedback, I actually really want the feedback when it came to the book and writing. Yeah. But some of the feedback went like this. Come back to me when you have a book more like Sheryl Sandberg. Mm. There's a lot of people who look like Mita writing books like this. And one of the other ones, which was fascinating, was like, Mita's a masterful storyteller. Her writing pops off the page. She just doesn't have enough followers. Like, we're not sure who's going to buy this book. And so when you talk about critical feedback, that was all feedback, right? Oh, but I kept going back through the notes to, to think, where is the feedback on the writing? I want the feedback on the writing because right. we all, you're a writer as well, right? Like we want to be better at our craft. And so give me the feedback on my writing because that's something I can work on. I can't write a book like Sheryl Sandberg. I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I can't change who I am. This is who I am. And I show up. And followers, what? Like, that's part of the publishing game. And oh, it is. Geez. And so that's really interesting because I just, I love that question about critical feedback because in that case, I don't think it was critical at all. Like the critical meaning there was like, there was a lack of detail, right? Well, and it's, it's, lack of detail. it's judgment. It's, I have to tell you that one of my dear friends went through the same thing with the followers mm. and the platform and she calls it your she used a different word. Your boobs are too small. And <laughs> That's amazing. And it's, I, I really love that because it seems perfect for the world that we live in of filters mm. and Instagram and everything. But exactly. But, and this is very, very important for your work. There's a layer of cultural bias mm -hmm. and systemic stuff in all of that yes. feedback. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you take all the feedback and like I said, you decide what you're going to do with it. The thing that I would say is if 
to those listening, if if you hear something enough from a lot of different people and it's the same theme, then maybe it's time to self-reflect mm-hmm. and think about, is this something that's feedback I should really action or think about, self-reflect? You know, the other interesting thing about feedback is like my strengths got me to where I am today. I love how we were raised to think about our areas of opportunity, but at some point... <laughs> My weaknesses are my weaknesses. I've worked for a lot of extroverted white men who are 6'5 or taller. (laughs) I've worked for a lot of white extroverted men. And some of them have been my biggest career sponsors and champions. And some, the relationship didn't work out the way in which I would hope. (laughs) But I am not going to be that. I'm not going to be extroverted. And I think the more I've reflected on that over the years is that I actually just work on leaning in on my strengths more because that's what got me here and will continue to help me in my life versus like all the things that I'm really bad at. Not that I can't mitigate those, but it's just right. I How much energy do I want to spend on that? Well, and I'm not going to be six, five, but yeah, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm five, one and a half. The half's important <laughs> to me. People meet me in person and they're shocked. You have such a tall Zoom personality. What does that mean? You are only five, one. That I actually would have. And yeah. a half. Yeah, and a half. And Sorry. A half more. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. You, know, <laughs> you know that I'm six, two. Yes, I remember that. Although we haven't met in person yet. So no, but it's like, well, at some point on Zoom, I'm not taller than you. More equal playing field. Mm-hmm. That's what I actually really love. Yeah. I love the new world of work that we are in. Because it's an equal playing field Mm. in a virtual environment. Mm -hmm. I can take up as much space as I want. I can speak as loud as I want. I'm on screen. I'm owning my square box. (laughs) I can make a really great first multiple impressions on people. And then I can meet them in person. Mm. And yes, my brownness still shows up on screen who I am still shows up on screen and people will make judgments. But I think there's something different than meeting someone in person for the first time, perhaps. And so that's been really interesting. Also, when you work for a global company with offices everywhere and you have, let's say, make this up, a CEO who's in London, only the people in the London office really get access to that person. But if you're all on Zoom, everyone's getting access to her equally. And so that's really interesting too. And so I am excited about the new way of working, and I know it'll continue to be the pendulum swing of five days in the office, fully remote. You know, the the debate will continue on, but I hope that we hold on to some of the things that we've gained from the pandemic that were positive in terms of work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I want to talk a little bit about your book and always with the lens maybe of anxiety a little bit, but your book is really fantastic because you say the quiet parts out loud (laughs) because you say that saying the quiet parts out loud helps us move forward in progress. And 
get past myths that I think a lot of us hold internally and don't say out loud. Why did you frame it like that? There are a lot of great books out there, including yours. Yours is in, in the leadership space. Mine is leadership and inclusion. And I wanted to grab people's attention in a different way. Because if I was going to put my voice out in the marketplace, which is scary, mm-hmm. and as the launch is coming up, I'm totally ridden with anxiety and like, oh my God, is anyone buying it? Is anyone going to read it? You know, all those questions you have. And I thought I have to get people to think about this in a different way and pay attention. And so I picked 13 myths I was going to debunk, 13 because it's my lucky number, let's not overthink it, 13. <laughs> and I wanted to start with really powerful stories of things that I had witnessed or I know other people have seen in their corporate spaces and places. And it's the stories we tell ourselves that aren't true and we hold on to them. And why do we do that? Because I do think doing work in diversity, equity, and inclusion can be scary. It can be anxiety-ridden, especially if you are trying to understand a lived experience that's not your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Being a leader today is really tough, especially managers. We're demanding a lot of them. The world's demanding a lot of them. And so it can be easier just to hold things to an extreme, right? This is woke. It's anti-woke. It's political. It's apolitical. Like, let's just other it and just shove it in the closet so we don't have to see it, right? And then that way we don't have to deal with it. And so that's why I wanted to reframe this and try to reach people in a different way. Well, I mean, a couple of the myths. I mean, I'm just going to read one. Yeah. Myth nine, these DEI efforts don't benefit me. My voice as a white man doesn't count anymore. Mm. I think I've heard that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a statement couched in anxiety. My voice mm. doesn't count. I think there are two sides to this. There are headlines that we've seen over the years Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Les Munez, men who deserve to be in the headlines, men who deserve to move on and seek redemption elsewhere. And there are men, white men in our organizations who are trying to show up and do the work and sometimes feel like they're demonized, blamed, and shamed. Mm-hmm. There are some men who are disengaged from the work, right? It it runs the gamut it totally of does. where people are on their journey. But the thing I would say and the thing I try to do in my role in doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work is that if somebody, let's say a white man colleague who I'm friends with, comes and asks me a question, I am not going to say, I can't believe you didn't know that. That's racist. That's sexist. That's homophobic. What are you talking about? My job is to educate and meet them where they are. Now, that doesn't mean that they can cause repeated hurt and harm. No one can do that. But I wish that there was more kindness and compassion in our workplaces that I do believe a lot of people have positive intent. The impact doesn't always land Mm -hmm. the way it should. And so I wonder if we showed up trying to help each other, how the world of work might look different. And I also know as a woman of color, that's not easy. And I talk about that in Reimagine Inclusion too. Like the burden shouldn't always be on individuals from historically marginalized communities to do the education and the work. No. And actually one of your myths, (laughs) it's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. Mm. (laughs) I like that one. Yes. That was, I mean, I was pretty 
raw and honest in that part of the book, I still go back to that story that I shared and it makes me sick to my stomach and also just creates a lot of anxiety for me to think that I went through that. And it was pretty much another example of putting pain on display. Another Black unarmed American is killed and shot by law enforcement and the company at the time says, let's get our Black employees together. Let's have the employee resource group talk about how this has impacted them. And as as you know, as a writer, storytelling is one of the oldest forms of human communication in our civilization, and everyone loves a good story. But you have to ask yourself at what cost you have to continue to go to a primary source, because what I might not understand as a journey to be an ally to my Black colleagues and friends is that every time I ask them to tell me their opinion on some horrific, tragic event that has impacted their community, they are having to give pieces of themselves away. It's intergenerational trauma <laughs> they're re-experiencing by having to keep sharing what they think over and over again. And we do that all the time in so many workplaces. It's like we put the burden on employee resource groups and individuals from historically marginalized communities to educate us. And it's like, what? why? Why? There's a concept that sometimes I get asked about, and I don't really have a good answer. I think it's called race-based anxiety or racial anxiety, which is a concept in which people of different races at work are anxious about mm. showing up mm -hmm. and being punished, right, or being judged and all the things. And it's interesting. I, I've been asked about this twice in talks. What's your opinion on that? Like, what's your opinion on the concept or the idea that at this point, I think there is a lot of anxiety about how we connect to each other authentically, not just because of our differences, but mm. also because we're on Zoom, right? Also because we're not together. How do we get through the anxiety to connect? I wish we would just think about what building good relationships look like, right? That's what it's about. But when you perceive a difference, if I look different than you, act different than you, if you perceive a difference, then that might make you uncomfortable and might make it harder to break through rather than if you just looked at me and said, oh, just a colleague on my team, I'd like to get to know her better like I would any other person, right? So I do think there's that level of anxiety. There's the level of I'm going to make a mistake. Right. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to be labeled this way or that way. And here's the thing, you're going to make mistakes in this work. <laughs> and that's okay. So embrace them. I make mistakes all day, every day. And my job is to say, I'm sorry that I did this. I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion. Apologies matter a lot. It's not like the apology my husband gives me, which is like, I'm sorry you felt that way. That's not the apology. <laughs> it's like, what that is, is tell not me. an apology. That's a non-apology. Non-apology. I'm going to own the mistake and the action. I'm going to show up and do better and be better. And when you have trust with people, psychological safety, we have a, a friendship. If I did something that hurt you and I apologize and I continue to show up on our relationship, I'm sure you'd give me the space and grace to say, okay, I'm going to accept the apology and I'm going to move on from this and it's going to make our relationship stronger. So I think there's that piece of the anxiety, particularly for people who belong and identify as part of historically marginalized group. And then it goes back to the anxiety of 
I am the only person who looks like me Mm -hmm. in this team, in this division, in this office. I am the lonely only. And there's a burden, right? There's a burden particularly I have felt in my career as I've risen in my career. I'm the only woman of color to have ever held this job on this exec team. Wow. And what does that mean if I fail? Are they less likely to hire another woman of color after me? And actually, if I do really well in this role, this opens up the opportunity and the door for so many others to come after me. So there's a lot of anxiety and pressure in that. Because I ask myself, and I, and I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion, so let's say I was a, a woman of color on an exec team leading a very troubled, struggling business. Mm. And it didn't work out for all the reasons, like didn't work out for the company, didn't work out for me, I moved on. Would they be more or less reluctant to hire a woman of color after me? Now, let's say it's the same situation with a white man. Right. He's leading on an exec team, a struggling business for all the reasons, just didn't work out for the company or himself. He moves on. Are they going to be less likely to hire a white man after that? What does data say? Probably not. No. And I've actually... (laughs) Look at our our exec seats. (laughs) Look at the executive suites and boardrooms across the U.S. and globally. Yeah. Exactly. No. The numbers are there. But there's a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure then. A lot of pressure that many of us can feel. So much pressure. Another myth I love is we protect the (laughs) a-holes because our businesses wouldn't run without them. I mean, I I always joke that if I had a nickel for every piece of reader mail that is, help, my boss is so toxic. I don't know what to do. I'm so anxious. I would be a very rich person. (laughs) What is around this idea of... Yeah, I know he's kind of a jerk, but his sales numbers are off the charts. Or I know he's kind of a jerk, but like I think that, that totemization mm-hmm. creates a tremendous amount of upset for everyone else Absolutely. at work. Yeah. I think there's a few things. One is that fear will deliver short-term results. Mm. They will. Yeah. I've been scared a lot of times in my career and I've delivered results because I was scared. (laughs) But you know what happened? I eventually moved on. But when you have so much attrition, someone replaced me and they were scared and they deliver and that person left and they were scared. So it will never deliver long-term results, but it will deliver short-term results and it will create a lot of churn. And like I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion, if we actually treated our exit interviews from employees and held them up, the way we did customer reviews. Oh my God. Our organizations would look very different. Like right now, if there's a negative review on Amazon or on Instagram about a product or service, everybody's stopping. Oh my God, send more another bottle of shampoo. <laughs> Get her a basket of products. She was upset, right? We don't treat our employees the way we treat our customers. Yeah. Employees are a forgotten customer, forgotten consumer. We're not actually looking at the root cause of Nita's the toxic leader, but we keep replacing people on her team and it looks like she's delivering results. And oh, by the way, she's not delivering the results. It's the team that she's terrorizing that's delivering the (laughs) results, right? But we missed that part. And then the other thing, Maura, that I've seen over and over in my career that I just, oof, I have a lot of self-reflective exercises and questions I ask in my book, just like you do in yours. And one of them is I ask it, you know, do you hold your personal relationship with Mita 
in such high regard and importance that you're willing to overlook everything else she's doing in this organization that's toxic. And I see that happen over and over again, that our personal relationship is more important to you than all the other people that I am hurting and harming. And you, as a leader, will put your own personal brand on the line to save me. It's so fascinating. You mentioned Harvey Weinstein before, but I feel like that's the whole story of me, too, mm-hmm. and why it was so remarkable is that mm-hmm. because of power, we yes. protect people who have power because we benefit from their power, especially if we're like them or, mm-hmm. you know, we went to the same school or we hang out together or whatever. And it's a real disincentive to speaking up. It is. And it's this, you know, well, you don't know me to the way I do. Yeah. He's really a good guy, I swear. Yes. She didn't mean it that way. She's retiring soon. Don't worry about that. (laughs) You know, all the nonsense. And you're like, what? And you're like, Mita just lost five women of color in two weeks that have left her team. And no one, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, but no one's saying anything about it. You're like, what is happening here? But I do think it's the power. It's the personal relationships. And it, you know, it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to intervene and stand up and say, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. There's this quote I shared recently on LinkedIn, which I think is just a phenomenal quote, and I forget who said it, but it is something along the lines of, your culture becomes defined by the worst behavior you will tolerate. Wow. That becomes your culture, right? You think about that. You're allowing this. You're either seeing it knowingly and you're going to ignore it. You're going to be pretending not to see it. Or you see it, as someone commented on my post, a former boss who said, oh, well, I, yeah, I, I know that meat is toxic. I just didn't think anyone else noticed. <laughs> You're like, what? Right. Well, that's right. a good one. I have never heard that. That is a yeah, that good one. one. Was, I was like, Holy wow, crap. what? Yeah. Right. Okay, as we round out, I'm going to end with two myths that as Ooh. a woman, I made me both chuckle and also like, oh my God, this has been my life. Um, myth number six, why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. I have a couple of times had the explicit your husband, but but a lot of times just a sense of judgment that I'm stepping outside of line by asking for more money. And then myth eight, of course we support women. We just extended our maternity leave. <laughs> Mm. It is, I think, as a woman, asking at work is one of the most anxiety-provoking instances there is. One of the things I talk about in Reimagined Inclusion is the fact that many companies are doing the right thing. They are quietly doing pay equity reviews behind the scenes. You've seen in the U.S. more and more states are calling for pay transparency. So companies are trying, I would say, to do the right thing. It's me, Mita, as an individual who shows up and wreaks havoc on everything because my relationship with money (laughs) matters a lot Mm -hmm. and it shows up in the workplace. So if I have had an anxiety-ridden relationship with money, if I was taught culturally, which I was, you don't talk about money, you don't talk about where you live, what you have, where you go on vacation, we don't talk about it. It's rude. And then you think, oh my gosh, now I have to show up and negotiate at work for my pay. And then I do all the things that I'm taught to do. I do the negotiations courses. I think about how I show up and negotiate. And then because a former boss finds out how much my husband doesn't find out how much he makes, he finds out what he does for a living. Mm -hmm. 
And then all of a sudden I'm branded as, well, you and your husband make more than enough money. Why are you asking for a raise? Wow. And so then you're gaslit, dismissed, and minimized. And white women and women of color do negotiate. There's a myth that all women don't negotiate. That's not true. Many of us do negotiate. And when we do negotiate, we're, again, dismissed, minimized, and the target of gaslighting. And shamed. I mean, I, I would say that and shamed. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's shaming. It's something I experience all the time as a self-employed person who's constantly telling people how much I cost and constantly getting a sense of, why are you so expensive? Because I've earned it. <laughs> what do you mean? It just drives me crazy. I had an executive recruiter a while ago reach out to me. Top executive search firm. I won't even, you'll know the name if I say it. I won't say it. Reach out to me. Big job for big public company. They ask me my numbers. Tell them my numbers. Wow. You're highly compensated for what you do. And do you know what? For what you do. You know what, Maura? You know what I said? I said, you are XYZ search firm. I know you're going to place somebody, you're going to get a fee, which is that person's salary times whatever. Yep. And this is a public company who has hired you to do a search. So yeah, <laughs> this is what I am worth and I have earned it. I have earned it. So that's the number. I'm just reflecting. I think for me, that's the one stumbling block that I feel like even at my advanced age, I still really struggle with, like the anxiety. It's about people's perceptions about how much women should be paid versus men and their deep-seated stereotypes people hold on to, right? It's like, I always ask, why is someone on your team asking for their pay to be reviewed? What is so triggering about that? It really has more to do with you than them. What, what's, what triggers you? And especially if you think, well, Maura should just be grateful for what she has. Oh, but Jim... Just had a family. He's expanding. He's ambitious. We need to pay him more. We know that. You know, we talk about that. Of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave, the myth that you just mentioned. It's the fatherhood premium and the motherhood penalty, right? For every child I've had with my husband, he is more committed, more stable, more ambitious. He seems to attract money. This is statistically proven. And I am a disheveled mess and I'll make less <laughs> for every child I have. You're like, right? You're the frazzled working mom. Yes. Yes, the frazzled working mom. I'm a caricature. Your hair does look very beautiful, so it's okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mita Malik, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Maura. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. <laughs>